In the hard-nosed world of healthcare delivery, with all the pressures and issues bearing down on providers and patients alike on any given day, it's tempting to excuse all the communication misfires that occur. The diagnosis that wasn't properly explained, the lack of time for questions, the nodding head that seemed to indicate understanding and assent when, in truth, the patient just wanted to get the heck out of the doctor's office, the lack of a trained interpreter, so a family member was asked to play the role in instead. But communication gaps, most improvers now realize, wind up being costly. They further a lack of trust, contribute to all kinds of mix-ups and medication errors, greater dependency on emergency departments, and disempower patients from playing a role in managing their own care. So how can focusing on health literacy help? We're going to be reminded of how and also learn about a lot of the new thinking and tools at your disposal on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, offered bi-weekly and also for your later listening and convenience via IHI.org and also on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Our focus on health literacy on WIHI is time to the very exciting release of the second edition of Health Literacy from A to Z, Practical Ways to Communicate Your Health Message, by one of our guests, Helen Osborne. She's the founder and president of Health Literacy Consulting, based in Natick, Massachusetts, just up a ways on the Mass Pike. She is also the producer and host of the podcast series, Health Literacy Out Loud, and the founder of Health Literacy month. When is that month, by the way? October. October. Okay. So we, we're very close to it. A worldwide campaign that raises awareness about the importance of understandable health information. Welcome, Helen. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be part of this call. Yeah, it's really thrilling for me always to have people in the studio, and I'm thrilled that Helen could join us. Joining by phone, equally exciting, from Des Moines, Iowa, is Gail Nielsen. She's the Director of Learning and Innovation at Iowa Health System. Gail is also a former IHI fellow. She's faculty, couldn't be busier. Uh, Helen and I were just talking about uh, how how busy IHI keeps you, uh, Gail. (laughs) She's also a patient safety scholar of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, and she's been coaching health literacy collaboratives for about eight years. So glad you're with us, Gail. Hello, Madge. Hello, everyone. Okay, good. All right. Uh, Great that you're here. And uh, maybe not too far from Iowa in Illinois, in Rockford, Illinois, we have Lisa Stevens on the phone. Lisa is the former director of clinical quality at Crusader Community Health in Rockford. She has this invaluable perspective of someone who's managed a diverse clinical health education team and also the experience of being active regionally in health literacy. There's a lot of information sharing Uh, and best practices out that way, and Lisa's going to tell us all about that. So, Lisa, welcome to WIHI. Thank you very much, Madge. I'm happy to be here. Okay, terrific. All right, we've got everybody on board. A reminder that this is WIHI. I'm your host, Madge Kaplan, and we're going to be talking about the meaning and shape of health literacy today and why it matters so much to all improvement efforts. So, Helen, uh, first up with you, I'm going to, I really would love, Helen, to start off with some terminology, and that's to be sure we're all on the same page, also uh, a kind of a good working definition of health literacy. Thanks. Okay, well, let's take it from the top. And 
for us all to be knowing what we're talking about really means framing what do we mean by that term health literacy. The most widely used definition of this was created by Ruth Parker and Scott Ratson in about 2000. And the definition that many listeners may have heard, and it's in many places, is that health literacy is the degree to which individuals have the capacity to obtain process and understand basic health information and services needed to make appropriate health decisions. It's pretty inclusive. It covers a lot. I'm honestly not 100% delighted with it, and I'll tell you why. Uh, but even the, the designers of this have been coming up with an evolving definition of this that they came out with in 2010 that talks about health literacy occurs when the skills and abilities of those requiring health information and services are aligned with the demand and complexity of health information and services. So if you can see in that evolution of 10 years, in the beginning it was about what individuals, what people can and cannot do, the skills they do and do not have. Now we're talking about that match, that alignment between what's required of them in a healthcare setting and the, the skills that they bring. All along, though, I've had my own definition, and I really want to share that with you. It's not going to make it into any research study anywhere, I don't think. But my working functional definition is that health literacy is a shared responsibility between patients or anyone on the receiving end of health information and providers, anyone on the giving end of health communication. To me, health literacy happens when we communicate in ways each other can understand. So the core of that definition really is about mutual understanding. And one question, um, we talked about this as we were preparing the program, and I think it's kind of throughout your literature and on your website, etc., is that people can have problems uh, where health literacy may not occur, this shared understanding, for all kinds of mm -hmm. reasons. Maybe not, you know, that's another evolution that perhaps we're now experiencing here. Well, I think in ways we have to... What I hope listeners to this call come away with is, this, is the fact that literacy and health literacy are not synonymous terms. There are several reasons people struggle to understand health information. And if I can, I would love to be able to share those reasons with you. But literacy or struggling to read is one of them, but it's not the inclusive one. So I hope that when listeners come away, they, they don't interchange those words in there. So I often talk about six reasons people struggle to understand health information. And is this the, the be-all and end-all list? No, not necessarily. But to me, it's a good starting spot to be looking at the broad range of what health literacy is about. And when I talk about those six reasons of people may struggle to understand, I talk about literacy, age, disability, language, culture, and emotion. Can I have a moment? I'll just talk just a little bit about each one. Absolutely. Okay. So literacy is really the ability to use the printed word in a functional way. And there's three types of literacies. There's prose, which is continuous text, like in a newspaper or magazine. There's document literacy of forms and charts and maps and graphs. And there's quantity, which has to do with numbers and calculations. If a person is a struggling reader, has struggles with literacy, he or she almost always will have trouble with health information because so much is written. But that's not the only 
only reason this came about. But going back through history, it started as literacy and health, and someone put those terms together, and that's how we got health literacy. That is one important reason. But other reasons include age, whether we're dealing with people at the older end of the spectrum who, when literacy levels decline or they take more medications, have more chronic conditions, literacy, you know, health, understanding health information can be difficult, but also children and youth as they're emerging from their parents taking care of them and going to a pediatrician to taking care of their own health. Those are both important to consider. The role of disability, I think, does not get enough attention. When people struggle to see and hear and remember, there's less ways for information to come in and less ways to communicate it out clearly. And I challenge listeners to champion that cause. The role of language, too, the words that we use. We know that we're in a multiliterate, uh, multilinguistic society in America. Um, when someone has English as a second language, he or she may be able to talk about the weather or food, but to understand the how hard hows and whys of healthcare takes a fluency that can take a lifetime to learn. Culture, too, how we frame information, our worldviews, our traditions, our beliefs, our habits, is another reason. And the sixth reason I talk about is emotion. Hmm. When people are scared and sick and naked and overwhelmed. What is it like to, str to understand health information? And I've been there, and I bet everybody on this call either has been, will be, or will be with a loved one who is. So if you look at those, uh, literacy, age, disability, language, culture, and emotion, it's a great melting pot of reasons we can struggle to understand. And those reasons may not be lasting. They can come and go. But the reason I spend time on this is it's health literacy isn't just about them one time or another. It's about all of us. That's right. And it, it can change different times and different issues may be uh, operating at different times. I, I was struck in Jim Conway wrote the foreword to uh, the second edition. Oh, of I was his, delighted that he wrote the foreword. I'm Helen's honored. Book. And I think that was one of the things that he really picked up on, which was really all the other reasons why we may not hear or understand having to do with um, maybe the type of news we're, we're hearing, a diagnosis, mm -hmm. any kind of emotion that may be going on. So I, it's this is great. So we're opening things up uh, tremendously here, and that's why I'm so thrilled that Helen is with us. So I want to turn, thanks, Helen. I want to turn next to Gail Nielsen joining us for Des Moines. Uh, Gail has been uh, working and thinking about these issues also for a long time. So, uh, Gail, let me uh, just, I thought you could do, what you could do in this uh, sort of early section here is just lay out for us what we're now understanding about how critical this health literacy understanding that Helen is talking about, how critical it is to health outcomes uh, and the improvement work that so many on this uh, program are involved with. Hi, Madge. Yes, yes I would love to uh, yeah. share your perspectives on this. And I see that this is really a unique time in, in our history when many forces are coming together to really help us understand that. And so here are the things that I see. Um, in my world and with the teams I work with here in, at Iowa Health and across the nation, that first of all, we have some uh, incentives from the payers of the nation. So it, that includes Medicare, but it's including others at this time. But there are rewards and penalties around a number of things that we do 
that need to be improved. And so one of those is reducing avoidable readmissions to hospital. And within that work, we find that patients are really struggling to understand what they need to know and do they leave or transition between one care setting and the next. We have work to do, and we can borrow on this discussion that we're having today, probably gain some insight into how we begin to help patients. We're excited that many teams across the nation have already Secondly, another one of those payer incentives and, um, and penalties area is this idea of patient experience. And the measurement of that in terms of, of HCAPs is beginning to be inserted in many payer agreements. It's showing up in Partnership for Patients. It's showing up at, at CMMI, the Medicare and Medicaid and Innovation Center. And it's also showing up in our future penalties. So this idea of measuring patient experience is, is crucial. And now it's getting the pressure to but also, we think about the patient's experience, and I know that uh, teams across the nation, many organizations, have been trying to improve the experience of patients in their care. How we've come to understand how improving health literacy and working with patients to understand many things, um, that is making, is making a difference. The other piece that I see is a larger, kind of a larger umbrella that we call care coordination across the continuum. So this is the process of a patient moving from any setting to the next setting to the next setting uh, to their home and back and forth between different types of care and care settings. And in this care coordination world, we are beginning to see that uh, the influences around the, the government influence, but also other and the idea that we can deliver better care. So that accountable care organizations, bundled payments, population health, opportunities, and things that people are working on in the nation will benefit from our understanding health literacy much, much better. We also know that if we can begin to do more partnership uh, with patients and incidentally, the um, CMS innovation that has come out uh, for in engaging hospitals, uh, an incentive called Partnership for Patients, that the idea of health literacy is well spelled out there, and we have opportunity to get together, learn to move this forward. Okay. Thank you so much, Gail. And by the way, uh, we Gail, that's great. You really laid out and gave us a very good uh, kind of high-level view and particularly struck by your mention in the newer um, initiative uh, coming out of Washington, the Partnership for Patients. We have a lot of information about that on IHI.org, and in, it, it'll be interesting also for us perhaps uh, to begin to look into that a little bit more in terms of where health literacy is discussed there related to a lot of the recommended changes and the interventions that are being highlighted. Gail's line, for reasons we're still trying to figure out, maybe just is cutting out just a teeny bit here and there. We'll work on it. Uh, don't despair. <laughs> so uh, we're, we're on top of that. And, and thanks, Gail. So again, this is WIHI, and we're discussing health literacy with Helen Osborne, Gail Nielsen, and now Lisa Stevens. So Lisa... 
you've got this wonderful community health experience, and I wonder if you could just give us a sense more about what patients struggle with to ensure that they walk away from any health care encounter fully informed and capable of acting on their own or their family's behalf. Um, I'm curious what that struggle looks like from the patient side and perhaps from the provider side as well. Welcome, Lisa. Okay. Thanks again, Madge. I'm happy to be here. This is an issue near and dear to my heart. Um, from my experience, you know, there's several struggles that the patient faces before even arriving to their visitor and their encounter. Um, in a community health center, the setting, uh, the demand often exceeds supply. So first of all, how does the patient access their health care provider? Is it a user-friendly system? Can they get through on the phone line? Are there easy access interpreters available for those who don't speak English? Can they get the appointment when they need it, or are they forced to go to the ER? Um, are the patients encouraged to ask questions, and if so, are they given the time they need to to ask the necessary questions to follow through on their treatment plan? Uh, does the patient understand how the healthcare system works? Are they from another country where the healthcare is not handled in the same manner? But even those from our country, can they read? Can they write? Are they physically and emotionally able to be their own health advocate? We have patients that deal with uh, pharmacy issues, and even if they understand how the pharmacy works, can they afford the medications they're prescribed? Do they have a support family system, or are these patients struggling just to put food on the table, let alone purchase supplies to care for their health? Um, Example, diabetics with meters and test strips and syringes. Um, Those are the struggles I see from the patient side, just a few. Um, I see struggles from the provider side as well, and a lot of... Both of these, the the huge factor is time. I think the providers struggle um, with time. Are they given the time they need to ensure the patients understand? Is their progress measured like the manufacturing world by the number of widgets or patients they can produce per hour? Do they have the support staff they need to fill in the gaps for the patients? Are they given time to call back the patients? Are they given time to chart during the patients during working hours? Can they truly create a relationship trust when they are behind schedule and running to catch up before they even start their day. The pressures on the medical floors and the patient's health and quality of life are at stake. Unfortunately, um, I have witnessed even the non-for-profit world, revenue is first and foremost. And I understand this, without the dollars, there would be no one to provide health care. However, I do think we need to find a better balance. Um, I'm very happy to see, as Gail pointed out, quality outcomes, um, pay for performance, types of reimbursement um, that are now focusing on quality, and I think that this will put, um, you know, change our focus and priorities where they need to be. Thanks so much, uh, Lisa Stevens, out there in um, Rockford, Illinois, and we'll come back to you in just a few minutes and have you tell us a little bit more what's going on regionally. I think what what I'm hearing, and we can hopefully get into this during the discussion, is kind of whether we have the infrastructure, in a sense, and the system changes that we needed we need to, in fact, as we raise awareness and and folks understand kind of all the different issues that we're dealing with, even. You know, the six things that Helen laid out, uh, what Gail is saying about all the different um, ways that this impacts care uh, quite specifically, and Lisa seeing kind of what, what that really might look like in the, on the ground floor at a community health center. 
where and how are we able to sort of change those things and take advantage of what we now better understand. So we're listening to WIHI. Um, all of you are with us. We're thrilled. Uh, about 560 of you got on board today. Over a 1,000 of you enrolled. So that means some of you weren't able to make it, but we hope all of you who did make it to the live program at least will let people know that there will be an archived edition of the program available to- by tomorrow morning. So I want to circle back to now Helen Osborne. Again, Helen is the author of the second edition of Health Literacy from A to Z. And my guess is she didn't call it A to Z for nothing <laughs> because there is so much in this book. Um, really, you could sort of st- you could really develop a whole uh, program if somebody wanted you to give you the argument. Well, what would you do with the health education department? You could sort of bring in this book and say, well, here are all the things we'd like to do. So um, no way... Uh, by the way, on our website for um, today's program, we absolutely took you right to Helen Osborne's website and information about how you could get hold of the book. Her publisher was really nice and gave us a couple of chapters that we could post uh, to IHI.org to give you a sense of it. So I'm asking Helen to do the impossible, which is to just give us a sense of what are some of the fresh, some fresh and new ideas that are being talked about, uh, even with all the challenges uh, as our backdrop. Well, I want to put this into perspective, so thank you for all that lead up to it, and I'm actually really, really excited about this second edition, more so than anything else I've ever written. Um, Health literacy is bigger than any one person or program or point of view, and I'm delighted on this show that Lisa can be talking about what it's like in practice, and Gail can be talking about the bigger picture and the quality initiatives. It takes us all together. What I bring to this is the practice part. I was an occupational therapist. I practiced in psychiatry for over 25 years. I know what it's like in day-to-day practice when we don't have any more time and we don't have any more money, and that's the frame of reference that I used as I wrote these chapters. So you asked for some highlights of chapters. Well, it's kind of like choosing which children you like best. (laughs) That's hard to do, but I'll I'll tell you some that maybe are new or different or, or are the evergreen ones. In this edition, which is the second edition of the book, I now have two chapters on confirming understanding. One chapter has to do with the teach-back technique. What do you do when you're in the spoken situation, when you're looking face-to-face? How do you confirm understanding? The other chapter there, the, the parallel one, is feedback. When you're writing information, how do you make sure that that meets the needs of your intended audience? I have another chapter, and I think it's pretty timely today with health news everywhere, and that's about talking with the public about what they learn from the media. What about they learn on the television and the newspaper and the internet? How can they make sense out of that? I have other chapters such as on humor. In this edition, I have seven chapters called Know Your Audience, which deals with those different populations we were talking about. And this time, I also have chapters on technology, including audio podcasts, obviously. I'm a big fan. You're a big fan. We're mm-hmm. our Listeners are all a big fan because we're on a podcast. But also social media and blogging from the patient's perspective, from the provider's perspective, and also using email and text messaging as a ways to deliver the health message. Basically, my philosophy is let's communicate in whatever ways work. We can have people like Lisa and Gail and lots and lots of other people measure effectiveness, 
But my goal always is to help people communicate a little better this afternoon than they did this morning. So let me ask you one quick follow-up question, uh, and then we'll uh, we'll circle back to, to Gail and Lisa also quickly. When you have this amazing compendium of all kinds of things that people can uh, develop, rely upon, skill, you know, techniques, uh, good resources to think about, and the book is is it's some it's subtitled uh, directed. I'm trying to remember the subtitle: Practical Ways to Communicate uh, Your Health Message. Right. Are you gearing this primarily? Are you when you think about the providers or who's going to sort of pick up these ideas and run with them? Are you thinking about doctors, nurses, social workers? Who, who who's who's in your head? Who's in my head? Yeah. Me. Okay. Me when I was in practice. Okay. I refer to myself, I consider myself a worker bee. Yeah. I I know what it's like day to day when the next patient's coming in the door and what are you going to do now? So I wrote it for the busy health professional. But it's a broader audience than that. And my world used to be hospitals and healthcare. I see healthcare has expanded so much now. There's this broad continuum through public health and disease prevention and wellness. And I'm hoping to address all those audiences, anybody who's somehow responsible for communicating health information. And that goes far beyond the, clini- the clinicians. It includes the clinicians, but goes far beyond many, many of us have responsibilities for communicating health messages. Okay. Thanks so much, Helen. Helen. That's Helen Osborne, and uh, she is the author of Health Literacy from A to Z, the second edition that's just, <clears throat> excuse me, come out. Gail Nielsen, I want to flip back to you now, uh, and I realize that we're all, we, there is so much to convey, and uh, in just a few minutes, I promise we'll open things up for your questions and comments. And by the way, I do want to encourage everyone, and Helen reminded me of this earlier, do feel free when we open up the chat, if you've got resources that you love, and things that were developed in your healthcare system or organization that you would love to tell others about, feel free to chat in what the resource is, uh, even a website link or anything like that. We'll capture all that for our resource document, and I know all of us on today's program will appreciate that information. So, Gail, um, I, I think from the maybe maybe not day one of my meeting you, but maybe day two, I heard you talking about Teachback, and um, I think it's something you feel very very, very strongly about uh, in terms of particularly sort of helping people deal with um, a lot of chronic health problems. Talk about what's so powerful. Let's pick up on that one um, one thread that's in uh, Helen's book and, and also are in resources that you've worked on as well. What is so important about TeachBack? All right, Matt. So thanks. You're right. I, I am always talking about uh, uh, helping patients uh, get this uh, mutual communication with us going. Uh, but, but before I actually move into the teach back story, I just wanted to make a comment about Helen's book, um, this, this edition of uh, uh, Health Literacy from A to Z. Helen and I go a long way back, too. And yes. so uh, what I appreciate about the book that others might like to know is that this, there are a lot of stories and real practical experiences in there, and those ideas are useful in two ways. One is to get an idea about something you might try, but another is this idea of using stories and how powerful that is for us. Also, many citations that I appreciate myself, always looking for new things that I might learn uh, to help patients uh, and, and staff members with the mu- developing mutual understanding. Thanks, so, Gail. Yeah, I remember sharing stories with you many years ago. <laughs> 
That's right. So, just thinking about Teach Back, what we've learned um, in our many years since about 2002 um, at Iowa Health System, developing health literacy techniques across the system and helping all of our staff members and others learn about the use of Teach Back, is that the, the patients really uh, won't share with us what they didn't get from us. They want to please us. They they nod their heads yes when we ask them if they understood, and then they go a ho- go home or go away from this visit, and they uh, they really didn't quite get it. And so we've learned that if we ask them to say it back in their own words to make sure that we did a good job of working with them to help them learn something new, uh, then we begin to get these ahas. And this comes in many, many settings. And uh, the idea of a chronic illness uh, is a challenge. And we, what we've learned is that we need to not only use teach back, ask patients back what they say, but we also need to get better about what it is we teach and not try to teach them everything that we might want them to know, but what are the vital few things that they need to know and must do to stay safe in any given situation for a prince. It may be a transition out of hospital, and I'm just going to flip onto the um, onto the uh, chat box here a link for folks because there is some guidance that we've been able to help teams across the nation with um, at IHI. It's a, a how-to guide about helping patients in transitions in care, and though this guide is about going out of the hospital and going to another setting. And so in there is uh, about how to help the team begin to learn, how to help staff learn a teach back, and what are some of the vital few ideas that we're talking about there. So I thought folks might like to know about that. And another thing that we've learned is that uh, staff really need to develop some competency in the use of TeachBack. And so there's guidance in there. There's even a, a little tool for going to observe at the front lines and see how teaching is done so that we can honor the good teaching that's already there and then begin to build in this idea of helping patients tell us back what they understand. So it's really quite fascinating what patients tell us about uh, later when they came back to hospital that they really didn't get this idea of taking this medicine every day or they didn't get the importance of taking their medication. They didn't want to fill the prescription because they thought it was expensive. They could have done it, but they thought they felt better. And so we didn't, we didn't help them understand how important it was to do any kind of activity like taking a medication. Mm-hmm. Okay, terrific. Uh, Gail, thanks for um, putting in the link there. It will also be in the resource document. So that's Gail Nielsen from Iowa Health System. All right, very quickly, I'm going to ask Lisa to at least make sure we understand that there's some really interesting shared learning going on in the region uh, where you are in Rockford, Illinois. And once we hear from Lisa, then we're going to open things up uh, for your questions and comments. So, Lisa, you, you're you're active in this regional alliance, and uh, obviously it's very important for people to be talking to one another and sharing these tools and resources. So how does it work out in Rockford? Um, I am fortunate here in Rockford we have the uh, a Rockford Regional Partnership for Health Literacy, um, acronym RRPHL, pronounced RIPPLE. And um, we have envisioned our the ripple effect, throwing a pebble into the water and watching the ripple, you know, that's that's what we're trying to create here. So it just so happened to fall within our name. Um, it's an excellent resource in our area. We have a great team of um, health and education professionals in the community that are active health literacy advocates. 
Um, the group consists of representatives from our three local health systems, from the Literacy Council, from the College of Medicine, including MD representation, pharmacy, library. And together we work uh, to create awareness and to share best practices. Uh, just this past October, we had Helen come in <laughs> and had an awesome uh, day. We started with a CEO breakfast and shared, um, Helen shared um, her wisdom and health literacy and shared, um, had the group share what it is they're doing and encourage them to be champions. And um, then we had a student lunch in which um, Helen played a game with the students. And in the evening, we had a program where we've actually brought one of our internal medicine providers who um, practices very much what she preaches and had her be interviewed by Helen. We had about 80 people in participation there. So we, we used the full day to try to hit every audience, and it was just um, an awesome experience. Let me just ask you very quickly, just because I want to get that out there. You also had mentioned to me when we were preparing for the program that some of this is also including students in the health professions. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, well, we, you know, students are welcome to join um, Ripple at any time, but we also have representation for those students, you know, the director of pharmacy and their med- uh, director of medicine. But what we did, um, we had the student luncheon, and then we had um, the students, uh, they have incorporated in their curriculum a health literacy piece. One of the projects was to look at a health literacy handout, patient education material, and rewrite it at a lower literacy level. And what this does is it gets the students to think early in their career about how they need to communicate to patients along the way. And it really is an eye-opener. And um, in addition to this, we have students that rotate through the various clinics, including the Community Health Center, and they see firsthand, you know, what the real world is like. There are no cookie-cutter approaches to treating a patient, and it's our job as health professionals to find a way to communicate so the patients can understand. And the feedback we've received from the students has been great, and hopefully we're, um, you know, we're building relationships and improving health outcomes. All right, terrific. Okay, Lisa Stevens from Rockford, Illinois, who's been very, very active in regional health literacy efforts and also health education at the community uh, health center level. All right, uh, John Gothier, I want you to remind everybody uh, kind of the ABCs, uh, if not the A to Z, of how to chat and ask questions and make comments and eager to hear what's on your mind. So welcome, everybody. All right, well, I just opened it up to chat. Um, remember that when you are chatting, um, if you've tuned into WIHI, you know that the uh, chat is the best place to uh, share your comments and questions. Um, it's now open, um, and uh, all you need to do is type in at the bottom right, take a look at the slide that's up on your screen right now, and make sure that you're talking to all participants. That way, uh, Helen and I and Madge in the studio can uh, see what you say, as well as uh, Gail and uh, Lisa. So uh, let us know, and um, I think we have some questions already starting in, so. Thank you. All right. Terrific. Thanks, John. Well, what I'm not surprised, so one about a couple of the questions that have come off right off the bat from Sue here. I think Christine's got something that uh, is quite related also from uh, Jill as well. So I'm going to, I'm going to, they each have a little uh, specific slant, but here's what I think people are asking right off the bat. How do you get buy-in? 
to health literacy with busy health care providers and time. This was mentioned right at the top of our program about time. Is there time to do this in a quality way? Um, maybe I'll start off uh, asking you, Helen, we can kind of go around the horn. But let's, let's talk about buy-in. Buy-in? Well, there's two levels of buy-in. There's the folks who are on this call. There's the folks who come to the presentations. There's folks who read these books. We buy in pretty easily. I'm much more concerned about those who don't choose to participate in all this. That's the harder level of buy-in. We need to make a strong business case why this matters. But for those of us who are on this call, who care about patients, that's after all, why we got into this work, time is the very real issue. I'm not, I don't want to sugarcoat that one and pretend it doesn't exist. But we have to spend our time doing something. And it's where the priorities lie for it. So if somebody's thinking they don't have time to do the teach back, or it's, it's a new way of communicating. It's not the hardest thing anybody's ever done, but it's not second nature yet either. How can you build that into your practice? And I heard a wonderful recommendation from the American Medical Association about how to start going with the teach back, and that is try it one day a week with your last patient of the day. Just start somewhere and then start doing it, and it will become a habit over time. So it's a more prioritizing information. When we talk about prioritizing as far as budget and resources, too, do we want to spend all our time creating handouts that nobody can read and understand and end up in the trash, or do a little bit more upfront time and make sure people can really understand and it's useful and cut out those questions at the end? So it's looking short-term and long-term. Okay. Thanks, Helen. Helen Osborne. Gail, let me ask you this because this has probably come up quite a bit, you know, as you've been working with Teachback, which is, um, is this time consuming? Uh, is it the sort of thing that providers tend to have some resistance to uh, because they just don't quite know how they can integrate this in? Can you speak to that a bit? Yeah. <clears throat> yes, Mads, I certainly can, and I have lots of experience from physicians' practices as well as uh, nurses in the in home care settings and in the hospital. And what I have found is that that um, first of all, in the hospital, is to be very careful to cut out all the stuff that isn't must know, must do, um, as the patient leaves the hospital, and then figure out how they get that information after the hospital because it's difficult for patients to learn in the hospital setting. So once we did that at St. Luke's Hospital in Cedar Rapids. Iowa, we actually created time, and the staff felt a lot more comfortable about getting it done because they didn't have to teach every single thing that we thought it might be nice for the patient to know. So we can work on what are the vital few elements. So for patients with heart failure, for for example, is that we want them to know who to call if and where to call if they have the symptoms, the four or five symptoms that you would want your heart failure patient to know. And if they can teach that back, that's really amazing. Can they, uh, can they know how to weigh themselves? So very few things, not everything in the book, a very little bit about diet. So that helps. So get, get it pared down to the real vital few elements. And then, um, then actually have people try it. So to start with small tests of change because as any provider 
and caregiver begins to use TeachBack, they begin to be surprised at what patients didn't get. And when that happens, it begins to pull the heartstrings because they are really there interested in doing better care and helping patients be safer over time. So, for instance, we had a a physician in our practice um, here uh, in Iowa who was willing to do this, but he was worried about the time. And he knew that it could add a couple of minutes to every visit. So he decided he would start his test with the last patient of the day. And so each day for a week, he did, he took a patient and did the teach back with them. By the end of that week, he was so convinced that he had learned an amazing uh, information about the fact that he was so surprised that he couldn't tell by looking at the patient, by watching the patient, by asking them did they understand. And so it fed his curiosity, his need. Within a couple of weeks, he was convinced that he had to do this with every patient. And then as he began to build that experience over time, he beca- it, it didn't take that extra time. In- I don't know why we're hearing that echo. Thank you. That's great. That's a great story, and that builds on uh, what Helen had said. Thank you very much, Gail. Um, Maybe uh, there's a question, first of all, uh, Lisa, how many counties does the partnership uh, cover, the regional uh, association that you spoke about, the Rockford Regional Partnership? uh, What's what's, uh, included in that? Well, I mean, we there's nothing excluded. Currently, we have Winnebago County, Boone County, Stevenson County, um, all the surrounding areas and health systems. But it's, it's primarily that the, you know, the Rockford region is northwest. Okay. All right. There's a couple of, thank you, Lisa. There's a couple of questions. Um, I'm scrolling through here. I'll try to get to all of them as many as possible. People are asking about sort of maybe good um, techniques or uh, even as drilling down here, what are the best words or language to use, particularly when things start to get technical, talking about test results, the nature of medical tests that maybe need to be performed, that kind of thing. I don't know, Helen, if that comes up in the the book at all in terms of any particularly good ways uh, to be sort of talking about sometimes the arcane world of uh, medical technology. Right? Well, I think it's first appreciating yeah. we are speaking another language, and just because someone gets ill or injured doesn't mean that they automatically understand our world. Um, I see some of these questions, too, and, and I also get this question yeah. asked to me a lot about reading grade levels. Yeah. Honestly, I hate that. Okay. <laughs> to me, that's not the measure of success. People really need to be able to understand what it is we're talking about. And word choice is hard, but it can also be a teaching opportunity. And that gets into the equivalent of teach back, which is feedback. And I encourage that when, for those people who are writing information, be it in print or on the web, that It takes a team, and the team takes you, the content expert. It also takes someone who is a plain language writer and editor, and you may be, that may be the same person, may not be, Uh, but another team member needs to be someone who represents your reading audience. There is no way that those of us who choose to do this for our work can know what it's like to read something for perhaps the first and only time in your life and may use that information to make life and death decisions. So that said, I consider difficult words. I think our responsibility as writers is to weed out those words that are needlessly complicated. But sometimes we have big words like metastases, 
it has to stay. Just because you want to get less syllables, it still needs to be there. Then explain it clearly and simply. But there's even a problem with routine short words. In fact, I have a Health Literacy Out Loud podcast that went live just this week. I interviewed Jessica Ridpath, who's out. um, She's working in a group in the West Coast about problematic words in health research. And she looked at even those simple words that would never show up in any tool and words like risk. What does that really mean? I did work on a project on quality measurement, and they went and asked some people about their different measures, and they found out people, the lay public, doesn't necessarily understand the word measure as a noun, not a verb. So even those simple words, I think we need to have the people teach us about what's hard to understand, and then when they're necessary to be there, then it is our responsibility to communicate it clearly and simply and confirm understanding. Absolutely. And I think one of the things to also take away from all the comments uh, we're hearing from our guests today uh, is that people don't have to sort of reinvent the wheel here completely. It is important for people to come to sort of a shared way of working on these issues and some understanding. I think that's partly what's the perspective that we're trying to bring in in doing this work and in helping and, you know, create this shared understanding. And in Iowa, if I just may say, and that's what I first met, Gail, and I met one of her colleagues, Marianne Abrams, and Archie Willard, who's out there. They are doing wonderful work together with the new readers of Iowa and really bringing this together in a a magnificent way. So I was good, right, and so thank you. And what I wanted to say is that I suspect both with the references and get, excuse me, in Helen's book, uh, some of the references that I believe are in the how-to guide that Gail put in there and many of the resources we're capturing, there's probably some terrific kinds of things that people have developed around medical tests and that kind of thing worth looking at and beginning to see. So how are other organizations uh, working with sort of complex uh, medical diagnoses and situations and the types of tests and even what is the understanding kind of cultural perspective on things like measure, as you said, risk, etc. Um, there was another question about uh, the business case, and um, Helen was saying that a greater business case needs to be made for this field, period, in terms of where it fits into all the health reform. Gail spoke earlier about the way in which shared understanding, it's, it's not really, uh, it should be a no-brainer in some sense that shared understanding is, is key to just about everything that we're trying to do with healthcare care But Gail, nonetheless, can you speak to any information that's starting to be gathered about the degree to which health literacy is going to be critical if we're going to be reducing um, avoidable readmissions? Oh, yes. So that's a great question because we don't have an actual business case in reducing readmissions. There is a business case that um, uh, has been placed in something like $800 billion um, around the nation that actually could be pulled out if we actually helped all of our patients understand. But that is a very large number, and it's very complex into uh, accessing care, 
um, really being able to use the messages that we get, a uh, very, very, very large number, so a scary number. So, what, But I have a different take on this business case piece, and that is from our health system, it's about our vision. It's about best outcomes for every patient every time. And so it's not about the business case about health literacy. It's about how that patient does over time and mm-hmm. the better health that they can have. And so it's almost to me like an ethical or moral um, a dilemma or a business case rather than rather than a financial business case. It's a fiduciary responsibility of our system to figure out how we deliver better care every day. And so health literacy has become over the years a bigger and bigger and bigger piece of it to the point where now um, we're saying that we're going to do teach back for every patient every day. And we've also just been fortunate um, for the, from, to be engaged in a Picker Institute uh, piece of work. It's the Always event. That's right. And so now we're building uh, and trying to figure out a new way to teach uh, staff in three settings, in the hospital, in home care, and in the physician's office, uh, to n- engage with and to be competent using TeachBack. And so the grant, if people wanted to look it up, Picker Institute, is called Always Use TeachBack. Uh, so we, we we begin to build on that uh, belief and uh, become committed uh, to that. I also wanted to note um, that I'm seeing a number of questions about uh, using words and how do we know about the reading level and all of that. And I have a very simple way to cut through all of that, and that is... Whoever your patients are, they need to be involved. You need to have patients helping you build your reading material because that will help you determine the reading level. That will help you with the words. Someone was asking about words uh, to use in the hospital setting, etc. And what I find is that we can do a, a really good job of improving our material. And then, as Helen noted, with the Iowa New Readers, we take it to them. They are the they are, they help us vet this work, and that's where we learn what we really need to do. Thanks, Gail, and I, I think that's a, a terrific, uh, you made some nice uh, segues and connections to Always Events and all the grants that are out there, including the one that's out there in Iowa on this issue. We did have a WHI on uh, the whole Always Events initiative of the Picker Institute, and people can look that up as well. And it sounds like there's some really good uh, work to continue to follow out in Iowa. Lisa, I, I'm going to uh, tip back your way and... Um, ask you a question. You used in your opening remarks, uh, you spoke of sort of where where health literacy and this work sort of sits uh, in terms of both priority and resourcing uh, in any health system right now. And I um, wonder if you could, uh, my question to you, and, and maybe it's as well to Helen and Gail, which is uh, whether there, there still needs to be a much stronger case for building this right into the infrastructure of, of what's happening with improvement and all the ways uh, that patient safety is being thought of uh, and quality improvement in general. What's, what's the work ahead for us uh, and everyone really on this program today in terms of embedding this uh, much more solidly? Well, this is Gail. Yeah, are you, are you uh, let me, let me ask Lisa first and then I'll, okay, I'll go back. Thanks, Lisa. Uh-huh. Good. Okay. Uh, my thoughts initially are that, you know, I feel we're making progress, but that we still have quite a bit to do. Um, I do think with the electronic medical record that we're now starting to include some structured data fields to collect um, things like um, 
in the social history, the last grade completed, difficulty reading, preferred language. I know one of our local healthcare systems um, that's pursuing the level three certification of the patient-centered medical home, they're creating care plans uh, within their EMR for patients with uncontrolled chronic disease. And then this care plan also includes literacy level, transportation needs, and other indicators that would that could be barriers to that patient's care. So I think we're making strides, um, but I think we have a lot, a lot yet to do. So some of the changes that are coming about with the electronic health record and perhaps some other aspects of payment reform and health reform will perhaps push this. Gail, do you agree? Madge, I absolutely agree, and I was just going to mention that um, we have uh, built into our ACO Pioneer Grant um, proposal, um, our Care Transitions Grant proposal. Uh, What we're moving away from is just a health literacy initiative. We've had that for eight years, but now we're integrating it into everything we do. And last week, we had uh, all of our senior executives across the whole health system together, and they were talking about um, doing a teach-back for every patient every time. So getting it on the street strategic plan of the organization, but showing everyone how we can embed it in what we do every day and all of the new initiatives that come ahead. I want thanks so much, Gail, and I want to acknowledge, first of all, we always love it when uh, those of you on chat uh, begin to chat with one another and uh, begin to answer, you know, provide some resources, and again, you can uh, download this chat uh, when you get off the program or ask for it by emailing info at IHI.org. Um, there was a question, a very specific question, I don't know if you saw this one, Helen, somebody wondered about the, a game, if you referenced a game that you played uh, when you were out visiting. And uh, I wonder if you could describe that. It's a game about how to create metaphors to communicate health information. So it's just a fun one. We looked at all, and I made it up, but it works, and it gets a lot of energy going. And a metaphor is when you use, whether you say it or not say it, you compare something unfamiliar to something familiar. And it's actually a quick and easy teaching tool. So we play this game with health words, and then we People pick a card, whether it's a hobby or a sport or public transportation or something, put it with a health word, and how would you explain it in that context? It's actually harder than people think at first. Can you give us even an example? I know we didn't plan this, but... Oh, my goodness. Well, um, I took the work from... I'm forgetting his name right yeah. now. The doctor, a doctor out there in Altoona, Pennsylvania, yeah. and he runs a workshop called The Heart is Like a Pump. Yeah. So that's just the way that you compare something to fil- familiar to unfamiliar. But we were doing like, how is kidney dialysis like music? And so people were putting those together. What it is is really a way to personalize this in terms of the other person's world. If you're talking to a musician, that could work very well. If you're talking to someone about computers, how is dialysis like a computer? So you put it together in the other person's world. It's short, it's easy, it's effective. And if anybody wants to know more about this, they're welcome to email me. I think my email address is available. If not, it's Helen at healthliteracy.com. So you're welcome to get in touch with me. (laughs) Couldn't be. Tell you more. All you have to do is remember Helen and Health Literacy, Helen at healthliteracy.com. And also uh, Helen's uh, website is uh, on our resource.com. 
document. It's also on our website as well. And uh, those those are great examples. Is that in the book at all? That particular oh, game, A to Z. It's a all Z. there. Of course, it's somebody there. kidding. My next book should just be uh, E I E I O or just vowels. <laughs> so we'll see. Okay. Um, I guess just a uh, maybe. Uh, well, I'll give maybe Gail. I'll I'll give you more or less the last word here. Just as because uh, I was asking really um, kind of where where do we have to get to uh, in terms of some of these challenges right now of building things into reform and uh, whether or not you talked about sort of some of the things as did Lisa that are embedded right now. Where are you perhaps most optimistic? Mm, well, I'm most optimistic because it seems like uh, folks like those at uh, Medicare and the uh, Center for Innovation there, they really get it, and they're they're helping us uh, build the infrastructure forward. So now we've got attention of senior executives. Now we can take some of these things. I'm seeing lots of folks on this chat saying this is what they're working on, and I'm so excited to see that. But they sometimes need additional resources. They sometimes need uh, attention from the top, and I see that coming now. Okay. All right. Well, I think that people asked, you know, what about the health literacy of all Americans? I think that's the big tent idea that Helen was talking about. And I think that, you know, we are working on it in different ways. We may not always call it that, but I think that we are working like that. Somebody is asking, what is an ACO, an accountable care organization? Uh, that is an innovation that's been talked about for a while, a way to kind of uh, bring varieties of healthcare organizations to care for a particular population of patients. Medicare is very involved in that. If you Google ACO, believe me, you'll find out a lot of information. Somebody also asked about students and learning about health literacy. There is information uh, probably in many places, but also on the IHI Open School webpages of IHI.org. If you just uh, click on the icon of the IHI Open School on IHI.org, you can find more about that. Well, we're at the top of the hour. I told everybody that 60 minutes goes by quickly. This is a rich program. We'll come back to it. There's lots to do. And I invite everyone to dig into Helen's book, the resources, Gail's mention of the how-to guide, all kinds of things. Uh, If you want to get in touch with Lisa Stevens as well, uh, let us know. We'll we'll provide you a way to hook up with her as well as Gail. Uh, So thank you to my guests and thanks to all the participants. Uh, Next up on WIHI, December 1st, 2011, if we're talking about communication and shared understanding, it becomes even that more challenging at nighttime and all these so-called sort of off hours uh, in hospitals. I have three terrific guests on December 1st as we get close to one of the darkest nights of the year uh, talking about uh, all the innovations that are underway to really build in much greater continuity and communication in the so-called nighttime or, well, nighttime is a real word, but in the off hours or the overnight hours. So you can find out information on our website about that right now. Again, uh, a reminder, you can download the chat. We didn't use a lot of slides today, but we hope you listened and that you'll go to Helen's website as well and look at all her resources. It's unbelievable. In addition to the book, all the podcasts that Helen works on, please uh, take advantage of that. Any questions whatsoever, you can email us at info at IHI.org. My thanks to Gail Nielsen, Helen Osborne, and 
Lisa Stevens. Everybody works really hard when we plan these programs, and we hope you got something from it. The people who help make WIHI possible in our offices are Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Matt Morse, and Kristen Shearer. We have this nice music that opens and closes the program. It's an original arrangement by Aaron Flanders and Miguel Sa Pessoa. And it's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care most of all for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone.